I hope you all have had a great week as we round the corner into the month of May. We're jumping back into the lectionary text this week and taking a look at the events post-Easter. And so just a couple of quick reminders. Next week, we will be back in the garden on Mother's Day. Uh, We'll be redoing some of the parkway beds. So I am so looking forward to seeing uh, folks out for that. And then our next Wednesday night group will be led by Bob looking at the Batman movies and some of the different theological implications in the films um, and what that means for our community. So as we turn to the text this week, we remember where we left off on Easter with the transformed Jesus who's appeared uh, already once to Mary Magdalene. Then the text that is in between Easter Sunday and this week is where Jesus appears to the disciples once, but Thomas isn't there, and then a week later he appears to them with Thomas. And they have this whole scene where Jesus tells Thomas, the one who kind of gets blamed as the doubter amongst the disciples, to touch his hands and feet where the nails have been. So then the Gospel of John kind of has this concluding paragraph at the end of John 20, where it says Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. However, the book of John uh, has another chapter, which we'll read from today. And some scholars believe that this chapter may have been added on later, but nonetheless, we are given another image of Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. So our text is from John 21, verses 1 through 19, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible translation. It says, Later Jesus himself appeared again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter told them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They set out in a boat, but throughout the night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. Jesus called to them, Children, have you caught anything to eat? And they answered him, No. He said, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they did, and there were so many fish that they couldn't haul in the net. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he wrapped his coat around himself, for he was naked, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they weren't far from shore only about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. 
Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. Yet the net hadn't torn, even with so many. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. The word of the Lord. Um, I think it's so fascinating. Um, I think a number of the similarities that we can point out in this text to texts that we've read as we've approached Easter, um, whether that was in the first call story that feels very similar to this, um, where Jesus, again, you know, tells them to throw the nets onto the other side of the boat. The net is not broken. Um, we see kind of this three questions being asked to Simon again, um, except we get a, an affirmative from him this time. And so there, there are just a number of things in this text that I find very interesting and hope that we can get into a little bit. But as we read this, I can't help but have my first thought be how grace-filled Jesus's appearance would be. There are multiple accounts of Jesus after he is resurrected, and they occur in different places, at different times, to different people, across the different Gospels. And scholars really have never quite reached a conclusion on a timeline or perfect harmonization of each of these accounts. But I think that there's something powerful in this particular text that I'd like to ask us to lean into, and this being the concept of grace, uh, something that can be sometimes a loaded term and may be defined differently across the board, yet is an important feature of faith and relationship. And I think in part we have to apply grace to our reading of the text, especially as we try to understand what's so different about Jesus's resurrection and transformation. The books of the Bible that are canon, aka everything that's included in the physical Bible that you pick up at church, includes uh, six different accounts of resurrection in addition to Jesus's own. Um, there are also other gospels that are not part of the canon, some of which we've talked about here. That includes the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary. 
um, that include other accounts. And in these, there seem to always be similarities. The person resurrected is done so exactly as they were before they died. A holy person like Jesus or the disciples were involved. And there is no residual effect or change in this person's appearance. And yet, in contrast, we witnessed to a couple weeks ago where we see the scripture layout that Jesus' figure and appearance were transformed. This is very different from all the other accounts of resurrection in the text. There was also no one there to witness the direct event of his resurrection versus examples like Lazarus or Tabitha or uh, Jairus' daughter, who were all witnessed accounts. Jesus is transformed in more ways than one, as he appears to be able to move through walls or disappear at will after his resurrection. And of course, his neighbor and many others have pointed out the Gospels are not pure, unbiased records of historical events. Each manuscript was composed for an audience uh, crafted with certain theological, liturgical, and apologetic purposes, Um, but something remains. There's something special about a transformed person and transformed grace that is all about movement. We talked last week even with Bob's sermon about the concept of lament, of grief as movement too. So there's two recognitions of Jesus that occur within this passage, one from the boat and one at the fire, but neither are truly definitive um, so much as declaratory. The beloved disciple declares that the man on the shore is Jesus and the disciples know the man at the fire is Jesus. And yet in both cases, they did not initially recognize him. But what was recognized in Jesus, I think, is the true question. Even as his appearance may have differed, his essence and identity remained. I think his love, his grace, his truth was recognizable. We see this being, I think, often the more important aspect. By the third century, what became the canonical gospels were already being widely read Um, And the tradition about Jesus's change of appearance would have been firmly rooted. And the detail itself seemed to be of lesser concern. Instead, the focus was primarily on what the detail meant in regards to whether Jesus's resurrection was physical, spiritual, or both, and the implications of that on their own belief in a future uh, kind of conception of a resurrection. And this is a transformation in grace itself. There are, I think, an important way in which we can read and see this text, that there is a balance between accountability and recognition, yet simultaneously a choice to move forward into something different, unknown, something that chooses love and humility far more often than being right or in control. And grace is in something, is in receiving something or in being something that moves us towards love and fulfillment. Christian Wyman says, to experience grace is one thing. To integrate it into your life is quite another. Of course, Richard Rohr talks about this whole concept of death and resurrection 
the cycle of Jesus's being that we're trying to make sense of. And he says, death is not just our one physical dying, but is going to the full depth, hitting the bottom, going the distance beyond where I am in control and always beyond where I am now. We all die eventually. We have no choice in the matter, but there are degrees of death before the final physical one. And if we are honest, we acknowledge that we are dying throughout our life. And this is what we learn if we are attentive, that grace is found in the depths and the dying of everything. After these smaller deaths, we know that the only um, kind of thing that would prevent us from seeing the truth is to swim on the surface of things, where we never see, find, or desire God or love. This includes even the surface of religion, which might be the worst danger of all. Thus, we must not be afraid of falling, failing, going down. When we go to these full depths, we can come out the other side in the form of transformation and resurrection. So what does grace leave us with in all of these little deaths? I think there's something profound in the human ability to keep moving, keep growing, even in the midst of trying to figure things out. In some ways, it seems like the disciples kind of step back or regress, that they go back to what was comfortable and familiar in the wake of Jesus's death and resurrection. They return to what had been their livelihood before Jesus called them into his ministry. And I think that's a very human response as they're trying to make sense of these events. They're trying to have some sense of safety in the midst of being so out of control. And let's be honest, for as much as we want to absolutely make sure we don't descend into using a concept of woundedness or making, um, making mistakes as a weapon to tear others or ourselves down, I think there's still beauty and importance in being able to name where we are, where we hope to move forward into, and the ways in which all humans sometimes fall short of what is the most whole possibility in that moment. Words and actions don't always line up, mistakes are made, miscommunication and questions align, and overall our woundedness in process of healing may be stilled for a time. But I don't believe it ever, the story ever stops there. There's so much out of our control, whether that's in our daily lives or in perfecting the narrative of Jesus in a historical manner. And even in the midst of all of that, in this messy thing called life, I think what we can control is how we choose to respond, how we choose to move forward in grace and love, trying to accept transformation even if we need to return to the boat and to fishing for a time here or there, as long as we are able to recognize that call in moving forward. And I often get nostalgic and look back at old photos, and I know you all will say, well, Kelly, you're only however old, but still. Um, And sometimes I look back and see what I looked like 10 years ago or remember what I was thinking about then, And it almost feels like I don't recognize that person. And often, I thank God for that. 
that I and everyone I love have the opportunity to change and constantly be becoming more in line with what I or we believe to be true and right, sacred and holy. May we be a community that holds each other as we pursue these things. That we can say in, in full force that there's love present um, in all of the ways in which we're trying to move forward. So I'm excited to see where our conversation takes us as we move into our time on Sunday. Um, again, as you all know, um, this, this conversation is collaborative and um, we'll talk just about what are our conceptions of grace, our conceptions of call, um, our, our questions, concerns maybe as we read uh, this additional uh, appearance of Jesus and the way that the disciples receive it who are present. Um, but overall, again, um, I think we are met with the ability to see how we are coming into contact with this story at this present moment in our lives. And we always, I think, hope to be, to be challenged to experience grace um, that, so that we go into our weeks in the fall, right? These are things that come back um, every time in our liturgy for a reason. Um, and so I invite you into that as we enter our conversation on Sunday. But as always, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Amen.